morning, afternoon, whatever it is for you. Welcome to everybody. This is our once a month, first Wednesday of the month keynote. Um, so I'm glad you're here. We have a really interesting speaker this evening who I'm going to introduce in just a minute. But first, as many of you know, it's our custom to invite you to put into chat hello from wherever you are. So if you'd like to go ahead and start doing that, it's kind of fun to see all of these things scrolling by and see what an international group we have here. So you can see we've got quite a variety of places represented already from all around the world. So uh, while you continue to do that, I'm gonna say just a few words about the format for this evening. We have one hour and most of that will be the speaker's talk. We will have a little bit of time at the end for Q&A. So if you have a question that comes to your mind as the talk is going along, you're welcome to just write it into the chat and then we will collect them and we will do our best to organize them so that we can pose them to the speaker in a way that covers as many of them as possible. We can't guarantee that we will cover all of your questions, but we will do our best to cover the main topics that you ask questions about. Uh, we do ask that you not have conversations with each other in the chat about the questions, just type in your questions. Otherwise it can get a little bit um, distracting. The talk will have slides and it will be recorded. And so eventually it will be put out as um, a podcast and a video. Uh, only the speaker will show in the video. So you don't have to worry about that. So you'll be able to come back to it later if you would like to. Um, so now let me just uh, take a moment to introduce our speaker. Our speaker is Sarah Lazar. Sarah is an associate professor in the psychiatry department at Massachusetts General Hospital and Harvard Medical School. She's been practicing yoga and mindfulness for many years and her work focuses on mindfulness and the brain, in particular, the neural mechanisms that underlie the beneficial effects of meditation and yoga, both in clinical populations and in healthy populations. She's published quite a lot on these topics and also her work has been picked up by some major news outlets, the New York Times, for example, CNN, USA Today, WebMD. Um, I met Sarah, I think, Sarah might have a different memory, but I think it was around 2006, and I remember being in a retreat in Massachusetts, a famous retreat center in Massachusetts. It was a retreat for people who were working with mindfulness, either as researchers or teachers or both, and it was back when the idea of having a retreat for people who were doing that was kind of a new idea. I think it was the first one that IMS did like that. And I remember Sarah talking with you at a point where we had come out of the silence about both how exciting it was and how challenging it could be in various ways. And then not long after that, I was editing a book about mechanisms of change, what actually changes when people practice mindfulness meditation. And I needed a chapter on brain-based changes, what changes in the brain when people practice meditation. So I turned to Sarah, who wrote a really lovely chapter for my book on this topic. So I have been in, I have great respect for her work for quite a long time now. Um, and I'm really pleased that she's here with us this evening to talk to us about her recent work, which is going in some really interesting new directions. So the title of her talk is the Fruits of Practice, Identifying Neural Mechanisms, Supporting Long-Lasting Changes in Worldview. So thank you, Sarah, for being here and over to you. Thank you for having me, Ruth, and everybody else. It's really wonderful uh, talking to a group of experienced meditators. 
uh, I was saying to Ruth and the organizers just before you all joined in that um, this is relatively new work. I've only given this talk a handful of times. And so, um, sorry, it's a little rough around the edges in some places, but also um, I'm really looking forward to getting your feedback on it and, and hearing your thoughts about it. Because uh, mostly I've been talking to you know, scientists and to um, you know, people who are maybe just starting out in meditation practice, you know, or don't really have a lot of experience. And so it'll be really wonderful to get some feedback from people who are, have more experience with practice. Um, so, right. So I'm going to share my screen. Share. Okay. All right. And I'm just going to start with a little bit of uh, background. Right. So um, often when people first start practicing, I mean, even after just a month or two of practice, what you often hear, what I have heard many, 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 many times is, oh my God, meditation completely changed my life. Hold on one second, I need to hide you all so I can see my slides, right? You also often hear things like, um, I see things more clearly now, and I don't think take things so personally anymore, or you know, I'm vibrating at a higher level. Right. And there's these really um, emphatic people say this, you know, come up to me and say, like, oh, my God, meditation completely changed my life. Right. And you just have these um, stories of how people just it's just really tremendous shifts. And, you know, we've been doing this research now for 20 years, trying to document and actually even more. I've been doing this work for 20 years, but there's been plenty of research done long before that, trying to document these changes. And, you know, we have these various questionnaires. And, you know, um, let's go back. And, you know, it's been really good for demonstrating things like, you know, decreases in depression and anxiety, and, you know, people feel better, but none of our questionnaires really capture what happens, you know, these sorts of statements, right? You know, so yeah, I'm less depressed. This is not the same as, oh my God, it's completely changed my life. And so this has really been the question that has been intriguing me for my entire career, right? And, you know, it's hard to get out funding for this, but we're starting to get some traction on this. And so that's what I want to share with you tonight is um, a scale that I think starts to capture some of this. It completely changed my life. Um, okay. So before we get into that, okay. So I also had one of these experiences of, you know, I practiced for a couple months and I started having these big shifts in how I interact with the world. And for me, I knew it was something about my brain was changing. And so, um, you know, early on, one of our first studies, we started studying the brain and we demonstrated that after just eight weeks, we could demonstrate changes in brain structure, right? And um, you may or may not be aware that this has been called into question recently. I'm calling their paper into question. We're not going to go into that right now. <laughs> this has been replicated. Um, and so if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't worry about it. You can talk about it during the Q&A if you want. Um, so anyways, we saw that in just eight weeks, there were several brain regions that changed. The changes we found were here in the posterior cingulate, the TPJ, the supermarginal gyrus or TPJ. Lots of brain regions have more than one name. This brain region is called both the supermarginal gyrus and the TPJ, depending on exactly what's included or not included. And then the hippocampus. And what's interesting is that these three brain regions are part of what's referred to as the default network. Right, the default network is the part of the uh, or the network of brain regions that's on when you're not thinking about anything in particular. And these brain regions are what's most associated with me. So if you put people in the scanner and you have them do tasks, 
where you differentiate between thinking about me and thinking about other people, these are the brain regions that come on when you're sort of thinking about me and thinking about self-related processes. And they're all changing in just eight weeks. We also found here this change in the brainstem. This change here is uh, an area that's um, in the area that's associated with the production of dopamine, serotonin, and norepinephrine, which are the main mood molecules. And we found that the changes here correlated with changes in well-being. And finally, we found that the amygdala got smaller and that the change in the amygdala correlated with changes in stress. So the more stress reduction people reported, the smaller their amygdala became. So this shows us that yes, in just eight weeks, we really can have changes in the structure of the brain. And it's widely believed, and it's been shown in animals, that oftentimes what this change in gray matter is, is a change in the neural wiring, right? In that it's um, because we're born with all the neurons we're gonna ever have, except for in the hippocampus. But the rest of the brain, what we're born with is what we have. And so changes in gray matter suggesting that, that there's more branches other than the neurons or that the, uh, the branches have moved from this place over here to this place over here. Um, you can also get helper cells that support the neural function that, that can also look like increases in gray matter. So it's really clear that these brain regions which are involved in self-related processes are changing in just eight weeks. All right, so now that's eight weeks. You know, most people practice for much more than eight weeks, right? And we continue practicing. And often as we continue practicing, we continue to have these shifts. We continue to have these moments of, oh, I see things differently now. Oh, I'm, you know, and when you look back over the past five, 10, 15 years that you've been practicing, you can see that you're a very different person now than you were back 10, 15, 20 years ago when you first started practicing. But again, it's one of those things, but if you take you know, the average test of happiness, anxiety, depression, you really just really don't see a big difference in a lot of these scales between long-term meditation practitioners and controls. So what's going on, you know, and yet they say that, you know, it's clear that they're different, right? That they feel that they are happier, but questionnaires are just not capturing it. Um, again, I talked about this, you know, we, so they have shown depression, anxiety, pain, emotion regulation, positive emotions, all of this definitely changes, but there's something that's just missing. So um, starting with this idea then, um, what happened was I heard about a scale several years ago. And when I heard about it, I was like, ah, that's it. That's what's capturing the, this changed my life. And so um, I set out to try to test this. And so um, as I'll show you in just a little bit, I gave this scale to a group of um, long-term meditation practitioners, long-term yoga practitioners and controls, and I found some differences. And so just to tell you that, yes, this is relevant. <laughs> um, and I'm gonna show you that data. Um, but first I wanna tell you a little bit more about the test so that you understand it, because it's a little bit, it's a little bit different than most tests you've, you typically hear about. All right, so uh, going back. All right, so way back when in the 1920s, uh, there was a psychologist named Piaget who said that cognition develops in stages, right? And that uh, you could, and you could define stages. And Piaget was very controversial, and there is problems with his methods and with his model. But the general idea has stuck around. 
And um, it's a little bit easier to explain it in terms of, of physical development. So when we're born, you know, we're just lying there and we sort of move randomly. There's not a whole lot of, of, of coordination between our movement, right? But then within a few months, the child is able to crawl and then they stand. And then eventually they are able to stand assisted, but then they stand alone. And then they're able to start walking and running. And then eventually they're able to dance, right? And what's important about this is that each stage is a real stage, right? I mean, the child is, um, you know, in the crawling stage for several months, and then they shift to this phase, and then this phase, and then this phase, right? And that each one, it's a distinct, distinct one, and that something shifts, and all of a sudden, you know, if you have a child, you know, one day your child is crawling, and the next day, you know, they're they're walking or they're they're standing and holding something, and the next day they're able to walk on their own, and it's a big change, right? And it's just it's a it's a it's a shift. And then suddenly they're able to walk, you know, and whereas the day before they were not able to walk on their own, right? And importantly, every stage includes the prior stages, right? So, um, you know, in order to dance, you have to be able to stand, right? And you also run, you need to be able to, you know, stand and to crawl, right? And you never lose these abilities. So even now in our old age, we're still able, or older ages, <laughs> we're still able to get down and crawl if we want to, but most of us don't need to usually. Um, the other thing that's important to know is that all this happens naturally and it's, you don't have to do anything. It just, we go through these stages spontaneously um, and they keep going, right? It doesn't stop here. You can also get uh, a little bit more. So not only are you moving, but you're also interacting with objects like a ball. And so now pretty much all of us get through all of these stages, unless there's some sort of illness or injury. And then some people, like say in high school, may then take it to the next level where they're say, you know, they're not just kicking a ball, they're playing a sport, which requires another layer of complexity, right? So you're not just kicking a ball, you're aiming the ball. And um, there's also the, the, another whole layer of complexity in terms of, okay, there's rules, there's teams, there's strategies, all this sorts of stuff, right? And so, yeah, on one level, you're just kicking the ball, but there's a lot more to it than just kicking the ball. All right, and again, many of us maybe get to this stage, not with soccer maybe, but or I guess football, because uh, we're in England here. Um, you know, it might be, you know, again, dance, or it might be, um, you know, another sport. But, you know, typically most people engage in some sort of sports in their high school year. But then some people go on to the college level, and then a very, 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 very few people go on to the professional level, right? And again, he's just kicking the ball. <laughs> but clearly there's a lot more going on here than just kicking the ball. Again, the, the level of strategy, the level of precision, the level of control is much higher than it was even at the high school level. And so the idea is that, um, you know, and again, I'm sure, if, well, probably not all of us could make it to this level, but you know, you know, people can make it to this level, but increasingly fewer people, part of the population, makes it to this level of athletic skill and development. Um, and this takes a little bit more effort too. Like you have to really train and really, um, you know, some people are sort of natural athletes and this comes much more easily, but they still need to do some training and whatnot. So now the idea is that, why we're talking about this, is that it's not just cognition, it's not just physical development, that many psychological aspects also go through the same process. And in the 60s and 70s, a woman named Jane Levinger said, well, the ego itself also goes through 
the same sort of stage-based development, where we start from a very egocentric worldview and gradually broaden that view to include more and more people. And so at the very highest or sorry, latest stages of development, it's a very world-centric view. And I'm going to be talking more about the different stages so you get a better sense of it. But that's just the general idea of it, is that you go from egocentric to egoless. Um, and again, you go through the stages spontaneously, um, but that we get to certain stages. Most of us go through most of the stages or many of the stages, but then at a certain point, we all sort of tend to stop or slow down and that only fewer and fewer, fewer people make it through to the later stages. Um, she argued that it's a lens through which we view, interpret and interact with the world. And uh, hold on, I need to move my, this so I can see things. Um, I'm gonna hide video panel. Oops, that's not what I want to hide. I want to hide. That's what I want to hide. Okay, good. All right. All right. So it's subjective experience at each stage becomes the objects of what was before it, um, a reflection of the stage before it. What that means is that, um, so we're able to sort of step back and almost like we're seeing ourselves from a third person's perspective, right? And so then that becomes how we interpret the world, but then at some point we're able to step back again and see that again as from another third person level. And this keeps continuing on at each stage. At each stage, there's increasing awareness of inner life and the ability to assume novel perspectives. And we move from a first person perspective to a systems level perspective on the self and on the nature of the self. And it influences the strategies and defenses that we use. Um, and what's really interesting is that at each stage, because again, you're going from completely self-focused at the early stages um, to completely not self-focused at the final stages. So with each stage, people become more compassionate more altruistic, right? Because they're more and more other focused and you're no longer the center of the universe. You also become increasingly less judgmental. You have multiple perspectives on what is true. You're able to uh, handle paradox and you see paradox. Um, and you also have a stepwise deconstruction of the habits of the mind. Like you see that the mind is just, you know, just throwing up information and then you see that they're just habits and that you can choose to engage with them or not engage with them. Um, and again, the constructed nature of reality. And of course, these explanation very much mirrors what we hear people who practice meditation for a long time talk about, right? This is what the meditation teachers talk about over and over and over again, that this is, um, you know, the goal of, of, of practice and, you know, the people who are enlightened, you know, this is, this is the, the goal of enlightenment is to understand all of this experientially. And what, um, the interesting about Levenger was that she found this completely, this wasn't um, hypothesis based. She just went and gave a bunch of different questionnaires on different factors and found that certain things um, uh, uh, were grouped together, right? And then she defined the stages based on these things that grouped together. And then very importantly though, so she showed that people moved through the stages, right? And so you might say, um, Oh, you know, someone who's just very egotistical, oh, that's just their personality, that's just the sort of person they are, versus someone who's very compassionate, oh, that's just the sort of person they are. But they were actually able to demonstrate that people could, they could demonstrate people moving through the stages, moving from the more egocentric to the more and more compassionate um, stages, you know, over time. 
And so uh, this is a, um, a model or a, a schematic of the model. And so we start from very, very self-centric. And then you go from self-centric to group-centric, then skill-centric. So, um, you know, so here it's, it's all about me, here it's all about we, and here it's all about, okay, my ability to perform well, right? And so this is very much people who are very much identified with their jobs, um, you know, and, you know, and uh, my position at work, you know, and that, uh, you know, this is, this is that sort of thing. Um, and then self-determining is, um, again, very much work-based and very much um, uh, governed by the norms of society, right? All four of these early stages, these first four stages, is very much externally focused. People at these stages tend to have minimal inner awareness, particularly here at these early stages, there's very, very awareness of inner life. You know, here you're starting to have some awareness of inner life and inner, you know, your own thoughts and seeing your thing, feelings and thoughts and whatnot but it's a pretty superficial awareness um and by socially supported and uh externally it means um you know my definition of happiness is i've got a good job i've you know um you know i'm doing well at my work i've got a house you know these sorts of things that you know these these socially determined um uh norms of how to dress how to, you know, what work life should look like, what home life should look like, what family life should look like. All of these are very much going with the social norms. But then something shifts and happens and people really start to go deeper inside and looking deeper inside. And this is where you get into self-questioning. And what happens here is that you start sort of saying, okay, well, the norms of society, those are good, they're useful, but there's something more, right? And you start to see, um, you know, there's more to life than just, you know, what everyone tells us is, 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 you know, we're supposed to want and we're supposed to feel, right? And with each stage, you get more and more introspective, more and more self-aware. Um, so here in construct aware, I talked about that there's the ability to sort of see that, you know, we're just a, you know, a construction of parts and our thinking is in our, um, you know, and that it's habits and a lot of it is is socially informed habits and we can choose to follow those or we can choose not to. Um, and then the top level is unitive, uh, which meaning is sort of just a very deep understanding that everything is integrated. Um, so the people who have developed this and have really worked on it, they are aware the the test is very much language based and they are aware that there's probably several stages beyond this but they can't capture it with this particular test, that this is the, really the upper level of what they can capture. And so definitely like the really advanced meditation masters, you know, the people who are truly enlightened are going to be several stages beyond this, but this gets pretty far in terms of, of um, development. Um, so again, this is conventional, this is post-conventional. Um, and but about the first early stages of the about 15% of adults, um, and in this group, it's all about me. I'm right, you're wrong. Doesn't matter if you are the world expert in whatever, I know more than you, I'm right, you're wrong, right? There's zero, or I shouldn't say zero, there's very little understanding of other people's points of view, right? And so they're capable of understanding other people's point of view, they just don't care. And so they don't, um, they don't think about other people's point of view unless it's pointed out to them or unless it's somehow useful for them. Right, because it's always about what's in it for me. 
And, um, you know, why should I care? <laughs> right? That's one of their, their key phrases. Why should I care? Right? And again, this is about 15% of adults. Thankfully, most of us move into one of the next two stages with about 70% of adults. It's not just about me. We can agree to disagree, right? Um, most people in white color professions are gonna be in these uh, two levels, right? And so there's definitely some self-reflection and some self-awareness, um, but and also awareness of other people's thoughts and needs. And so again, you're gonna be thinking about, oh yeah, if I say this mean thing, it's gonna hurt this other person's uh, feelings. Um, you know, I need to do certain things in order, you know, to keep the peace, you know, these sorts of things. But then when we get into the later stages, again, it's only about 15% of adults. And again, at every stage, it's fewer and fewer and fewer percentage of adults. And at this level, it's not about me at all, right? So it starts with all about me. It's not just about me. It's not about me at all. We can both be right depending on the situation. We can both be wrong depending on the situation. I want to hear your point of view, right? People at this stage are very much, it's my way or the highway. Right. And, you know, again, I'm right. You're wrong. I don't want to hear your point of view versus here. It's yeah, no. Oh, we disagree. I want to understand your point of view. You know, sit down. Let's have, a, you know, sit down on a, with a cup of tea and, you know, tell me I want to understand your point of view. So there's deep self-reflection and they're thinking at the systems level specifically about social interaction. So, yes, my interactions in, you know, my actions impact you, your actions impact me, how I impact you is then in turn to impact how you impact other people around you. Um, you know, that we all have different places in society, um, you know, things like gender and race and how that influences all this. And um, as I told you here, you know, this person is capable of understanding other people's point of view, but they just don't habitually think about it, right? Because they're always thinking about themselves. At this stage, people are typically thinking about, okay, maybe the people right around them, you know, and the people that they typically interact with, but that's about it. They don't, and they're capable of thinking about this, but they don't habitually do this, right? Just as the people here habitually only think about themselves, the people here habitually think about, okay, they're close others and they're immediate people around them versus people at the later stages increasingly, you know, they're spontaneously are thinking about this all the time. Right. So just as this person never thinks about it unless they're forced to, these people spontaneously are thinking about this complex interaction between people. Um, it just naturally think, comes to mind when they think about um, when they view the world and when they're engaged in new situations. All right. So how do we test this? It's a very, very, very interesting test called the maturity assessment profile. And what it is, it's 36 sentence stems and the instructions are complete the sentence any way you want. So a good boss, my mother and I, education, when I am criticized, when they talk about sex, if I can't get what I want, if I, I just can't stand people who, right? So just finish the sentence any way you want. And then what they find is that there's very specific answers, types of answers given at each stage. And so there is a scoring manual and a um, you know, very specific instructions on how to score each answer. And so some examples. So this is people at the very earliest stages, right? So a good boss works hard, makes a lot of money, right? It's all about my perspective, right? So if I'm a good boss, I must be working hard. And I'm, you know, I, 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 I know I'm a good person. I'm a good boss because I'm making money, right? That's how I know I'm making a, I'm a good boss. 
When I'm criticized, I get mad and I criticize back. I can't stand people who make me mad or laugh at me, right? Because it's just, ugh. Um, my mother and I fight. We have the same body type. It doesn't matter if you say my mother and I fight or my mother and I love each other, right? It's not so much the, the quality of the relationship, it's how you describe it. Um, when a child won't join in activities, something is wrong. She's a loner, right? Zero understanding, so zero compassion, zero understanding of other people's point of view, right? For stage four, this is a middle stage, a good boss mentors his employees, knows how to juggle her employees' needs with her own, right? So it's very much seeing, okay, there's me, but there's also the people around me and I need to, you know, we need to help each other. I need to help them. You know, I'm a boss. This is my role as a boss. I, my role is to help people. When I'm criticized, I listen, I think about it. I try to accept it, at least with outward grace. Um, I just can't stand people who think they are better than others, who won't stand up for themselves. My mother and I have different politics, values, and conviction, right? So before they said that my mother and I fight, so now there's a little bit more nuance to it, right? And when a child won't join him in activities, maybe he's afraid. I ask him something wrong and I try to help. Then at later stages, we have um, a good boss, hold on, I can't see this, uh, sees the whole and the voices that are needed to complete the task. Right. This is nothing about, you know, making money, nothing about uh, working hard. Right. It's, you know, seeing complex interactions between the employees. And this is, again, people are the only instructions are complete the sentence any way you want. And you can see that someone who answers a question this way would never answer, you know, give the answer the question with, you know, good boss works hard or good boss makes a lot of money. Right. This is very, very, very different type of person. When I am criticized, my initial reaction is to defend my position, but then I try to separate my position from my person and change my position when warranted, right? So again, lots of self-reflection, lots of self-awareness here, right? It's, oh, I see my initial reaction and I don't just spontaneously react on it. I see it, I notice it, and then I choose, okay, and I start I, separating my position from my person, right? So really seeing that, okay, that's just part of who I am. It's not all of who I am, it's just one thought. And then I think about it and I reflect on it, right? So lots of self-awareness there, a lot of self-awareness there. Again, it's not like, oh, when they criticize me, I criticize back, right? Very, very different. I can't stand people who lack caring for others. It was their behavior I can't stand, not them. Again, this separation, this deconstruction of, okay, there's the people and then there's behaviors and there's parts of them and sort of seeing all of that. Um, my mother and I were never really particularly close. Friends, but no parental relationship. So again, seeing the relationship. So not just, oh, you know, I don't like her, we're fighting. It's okay, yeah, no, you know, she, we, we had a friendly relationship, but she was not a mother figure to me. My child won't join into group activities, maybe because he feels no identity with the group or is too self-conscious or has no real interest in the activities, right? So again, a really, really understanding things from the kid's point of view, right? The first person was, oh, there's something wrong with him. Right. You know, and oh, they're, they're a loner. <laughs> Talk about judgmental versus here. There's nothing wrong with this kid. Well, maybe he's just not interested. Right. And he's feeling self-conscious. Right. So it's very, very different types of people. And again, what they've demonstrated is that over time, you can show demonstrate people moving from one stage to the next, to the next, to the next. 
So this is not just personality. It is, it's an aspect, but it is not a permanent aspect of personality and that it can change and will change over time um, given the right conditions. All right, so uh, this is just to show you a little bit. So no one ever answers all the questions at one stage. So this is one particular person who's at stage three, four. Um, and so you can see that most of their questions, so this is just, a, you know, they had, um, uh, you know, one or two questions that they answered at stage two, one or two that they answered at stage, this stage, the two slash three. A couple were at stage three, some were, most of them were stage three, four, and then a few were that. And this is very, very typical what we see is that there's always a trailing and a leading edge, right? Because we don't just change overnight and go from stage three to stage four, right? That you have this, um, but typically what you see though, this is uh, the next stage is that there's always one stage where there, most of your answers are at one particular stage. And then you have, again, like a, a growing and a leading edge. And occasionally you get this double bump, um, but typically you get more or less a bell-shaped curve. So um, just to get a sense of the distribution. So uh, before I get into the data, so all levels are equal. Each level has unique strengths and capabilities and a healthy society really requires all levels, right? And that's important, right? So we, it's important not to look down on people who are at early stages. Um, against how we typically respond to and our center of gravity, but as we saw in that last slide, someone who's even at a relatively late stage under certain circumstances may have a relatively early response. Similarly, someone who's at a relatively early stage may in some circumstances have a relatively late response. You know, it all depends on sort of how well we've integrated our understanding of the world. Um, and so what distribution is typical with uh, the edges, like I said. Um, and I always th think it's important to say, um, you know, because probably most of us are somewhere, if you're long-term meditators, uh, come back, oops. Um, if we're long-term meditators, there's a good chance we're at least here and, you know, somewhere over in this range, as I'll show you in just a moment. And so it's important not to look down on people or to judge people or criticize people at these early stages, right? Because again, there's some really wonderful, warm people here. Um, lots of times people are like, oh yeah, you know, those, the, you know, certain well-known Republican leaders in America are, you know, this is them, right? It's like, well, there's also some really, really warm, wonderful people if I know who are at these stages. So don't look down on people here. In particular, because even if you're, say, up here, there's lots of people up here. And you don't want these people to look down on you because you're only here. So don't look down on people who are over here. So just a, a, a reminder. Okay. So that's the, the test and how it works. Um... Okay, we're gonna skip that for now just because we're running low on time. I'll come back to that. Now, what about the brain and how is this related to meditation? So as I mentioned, I learned about this test and I was excited and I thought, okay, can we, you know, this seems like, you know, this is what meditation is doing, right? It's, it's, you know, for me at least, I felt like I had moved through a couple of stages by the time I learned about this test. And so I thought, okay, this, there's something here. So we were doing another test, another study that was funded, and we just gave this test to the subjects and said, and said, okay, let's see if there's anything here, right? What can we find out? And so the question was, so do people who've been practicing yoga and meditation for a while, you know, do they have higher scores than controls? And also, 
what are the neural correlates of it? Can we start to identify brain regions related to this? Um, and uh, one question I get over and over and over again from people is, I don't meditate, I practice yoga, I practice Tai Chi, I practice this other form of meditation. Does it matter? And so to begin to start to address that question, in the study we had, as I mentioned, both long-term Vipassana mindfulness meditators and long-term yoga practitioners, as well as controls. And there were about uh, 16 people per group. And they were matched for age, gender, education, and race. And um, we'll skip through that. So what we saw was that when we gave the test, that indeed, both the yoga practitioners and the meditation practitioners scored higher than the controls. And interestingly, the meditators scored higher than the yoga practitioners. That one really surprised me because by chance, the yoga practitioners had twice as many lifetime hours of practice as the meditation practitioners. And several of the yoga practitioners were actually yoga teachers. Um, and so this really surprised me that the meditators scored more high, more, more higher. Um, and then when we looked at the distribution we saw was that all of the controls, which are in this light color, all of them were at these two stages, which again, this is 70% of the population is at these two stages, the two, these are the two um, highest of the conventional stages. Interestingly, most of the yoga practitioners were also at these two stages, though there are more controls here and more yoga practitioners here. There are also some meditation practitioners here, but here at the post-conventional stages, we only found meditation practitioners. And as I just mentioned, the yogis had twice as many hours of practice, but we think the big difference is that yoga is very much, there is definitely an inner focus, but it tends to be focusing on body and body sensations versus with mindfulness, you really get into the mind. And so certainly you definitely get a little bit into the mind with yoga, you know, um, but with mindfulness, there's a much, much greater emphasis on this. Also, as we know, um, particularly in Buddhist meditation, there is a lot of philosophy that goes along with it and um, a very, also a big emphasis on compassion and, um, and the whole idea of no self and, and um, equanimity and, um, and altruism and whatnot. So it could be that there's something about yoga practice versus meditation practice. It could be something about the Buddhist philosophy. We can't disambiguate that in this particular study. Um, it's also possible that it's just um, the people who choose to meditate versus the people who choose to do yoga versus people who don't choose to do these things. You know, that, that maybe even if they had never, ever, ever meditated, they would have reached these levels. Um, we just don't know because we just looked at this one time point. And that's hopefully what we're going to do in the future is uh, do a longitudinal study. Um, what we found also, though, is that the score on this test correlated with uh, the FFMQ, which uh, Ruth knows a little bit about, <laughs> the five-facet five, five facet mindfulness questionnaire, which is uh, the a questionnaire developed by Ruth Bayer. Um, and so we see that uh, the higher their FFMQ scores, the higher their overall score on this test. So it does suggest that mindfulness helps contribute to this, that you know, so being mindfully aware of your inexperience in this non-reactive way is uh, related to, to uh, the score. Um, and then this was a test we gave of the standard test of fluid intelligence, um, or fluid, uh, which is referred to as IQ. 
And in this, what we found was that uh, here are the controls and it's well known that as we get older, this goes with age. And we saw as both the meditation and yoga practitioners, it's preserved with age, right? And the reason why I'm showing this here is that here, the, met, the yogis scored higher than the controls. It's not statistically different, but it's, you know, almost statistically different between the two. And this is interesting because again, um, it may just be who chooses yoga versus who chooses meditation. The yogis had twice as many lifetime hours of practice, but it does suggest that these different practices, although yes, they all have similar general benefits, that some practices may produce different types of benefits or more may emphasize different types of benefits. So it's possible that yoga has perhaps a bigger influence on cognition versus mindfulness has bigger influence on ego maturity. We don't know because again, it's cross-sectional. So take it all with a grain of salt. All right, what about the brain? So I showed you back in those first slides, I talked to you about the default mode network, right? And the PCC and how the PCC is the part of the brain that's most associated with the self, right? So when you do anything about self-related, you think PCC. And so we said that was our number one region of interest. We said, what is the relationship between thickness in this region and score? And what we found is that when we took everybody all together, we found a very strong correlation between scores on this test and thickness in their PCC. Um, and again, what's interesting, it's the exact same region that we saw changing in just eight weeks of meditation practice, right? And like I said, we think that this change in gray matter reflects something about how the neurons are wiring together or the cells that support them, right? And so in just eight weeks, we're starting to get the brain being rewired in this brain region. And this is the brain region that's associated with this score. So maybe, and again, we don't know because we didn't do this test pre-post yet. You know, this could help explain that, oh my God, this changed my life, right? If you're starting to see changes in this brain region, right? That's related to this test. Um, we next asked, okay, so that's the structure of the brain. What about the function of the brain? Who is the PCC talking to? So again, when we looked at all the data from all three groups combined together, we saw that connectivity between the PCC and this brain region here correlated with score. What is this brain region? This brain region is related to the ability to talk about your life and to talk about your narrative, right? And to produce narrative. This test is very much related to narrative, right? It's like, you know, a good boss, my mother and I, um, you know, when I'm criticized, right? So it makes a lot of sense that a language area would be related to this score. And again, that's when we put everybody together. But then we asked, well, what about if we look at meditators and yogis versus controls? Um, that's sort of generating narrative. What we see there is this region here, and this region is involved in understanding narrative, right? So the previous region was language and generating the narrative. Now it's understanding information. How is all of this relevant to me? How do I integrate this into my worldview, right? That's what this region here is doing. And this is the region that is different between the yoga and meditation practitioners versus controls, right? So it suggests that somehow the yoga and meditation is um, 
um, facilitating understanding narrative. And again, this gets really into the Buddhist philosophy and the looking inward and the, um, you know, the mindfulness and the aware, self-awareness, right? It's like, ah, okay, I'm seeing all this stuff and I'm understanding it and I'm understanding how I think and how I'm put together. Um, and then the final reason we found here was the, the TPJ or SMG. And again, this is an area that's involved in perspective taking, right? So being able to see things from other people's point of view, it's a key region involved in empathy. Um, and again, it's um, the region we found changing in just eight weeks after MBSR. So again, this really suggests that these regions that are important for um, promoting or they're associated with higher scores on this test are changing in just eight weeks. And that they are regions that are um, involved in key aspects of this test, right? So again, because at every stage, you're being able to take a bigger and bigger perspective on the world. So this gives us some sense that yes, meditation practice really can change these brain regions. And it's not because again, this is all this study was cross sectional, right? So we just have long term meditators versus controls. But here we're showing that yeah, even after just eight weeks of practice, we have changes in these brain regions. And so, um, oh, and the last bit of data, was we saw when we plot the data was that the connectivity between the PCC and the uh, these two regions, the TPJ and the SMG, showed this relationship where you have this sort of relationship, a negative relationship between connectivity and uh, in the um, the um, the controls, and then a positive correlation in the yogis and meditation practitioners. And where this change happens is precisely the boundary between these two stages. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and so it really does suggest that there's a shift, a literal shift in the brain, like in how the brain is wired, that's accompanying this shift in perspective. And so um, uh, we're running low on time. And so I'm actually going to skip through this and I'm going to say thank you. And I'm going to stop sharing so we have some time for some questions and answers. And uh, so, yeah, I'm open for questions. Thank you, Sarah. That was really fascinating. Um, I haven't been fed any questions yet, so I thought I'd just ask you one myself, if that's okay. Oh, yes. Um, um, as you mentioned, and of course,